What is going on, everybody? This is Frank here with Aaron across from me. Uh, we are doing a podcast. We are doing a podcast about gear from our recent mule deer hunt. We came back uh, yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday evening, Aaron got his deer. Um, first trip, we were in there Just for- shy of a decade. <laughs> <laughs> we were there for 12 days on the first trip, and uh, Aaron got it done on the second day of the second trip. So 14 days total, two deer down- one tag notched we got several to go so probably going to talk about um gear what we use tactics strategy stuff like that yeah we got a lot of questions um while we were on the mountain as well as when we got back from the first trip before we headed back in um you know well just cover um some of the questions that were sent in and then just general stuff um i'd say the first one let's cover would be um the shelters uh Frank and I went back and forth during scouting between um, running just a tarp and a bivy or just a tarp uh, and then Hillebergs. And then we ran Hilleberg tents for our uh, base camp shelter when we got in there and then uh, tarp bivy for our spike camp shelter or just a tarp. Um, we get a lot of questions about that. Um, and it, the easiest way for me to explain it is if it's five days or less above tree line. A lot of time, and it's not too, too crap bad, bad of weather. I'll save the weight and just run a tarp. The longer the t it goes, the more, and especially when I can't burn wood or a stove, I'll run uh, a, a little bit bigger uh, dual wall shelter, a Hilleberg. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong um, answer. Um, honestly, if Frank and I were together and went in there again, I'd probably run a sawtooth more than a Hilleberg. Um, for an extended trip, um, just because there's so much room in that that sawtooth. But um, a lot of times when we're up that high on extended trips, I'll run a Hilleberg uh, when I can't burn wood. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer to that. One of the nice things, if you're running, um, you know, uh, a Hilleberg with the wind, is it does cut the wind down some, uh, blowing in. But I mean, Frank, what do you think about that? Yeah, there's, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think a lot of it's personal preference. And, um, I mean, obviously we've talked about this before. The main difference is going to be the weight, the weight savings. So, you know, with the tarp, uh, I think the super tarp weighs just under a pound. With the NX, you're probably looking at a pound or maybe a little bit more, depending on which Hilleberg you're looking at, um, probably three to four, maybe in five pounds if you go with something like the Solo. But, yeah, I think a, a lot of the – some of the weather kind of might dictate some of the stuff. I've used a tarp for freaking ever. Um, this year has probably been one of the first years that I've actually used a tent for, for hunting purposes for, for backcountry stuff. But um, I think one thing that it, that I really like about having a tent is if it's really windy, you're not getting those drafts coming under the tarp. It's never really bothered me before, though, being in the tarp. Uh, one of the things that I really like about having a tarp is the – the amount of room that you have so a super tarp for one guy is, is basically a small palace you got a ton of room there lay out all your gear and then on the other side you can you can have your pad and your your uh, sleeping bag so uh, definitely pros and cons to both i'll continue to use both i had both on the trip um spiked out a couple uh for two nights with the super tarp the rest of the time i had my uh hilleberg at, at the base camp but yeah i mean I, you can't go wrong with either it just de depends on how much weight you want to carry and kind of the levels of, of comfort and what you're used to and what you like. And, um, 
I mean, the, like I said, sometimes, you know, it can get a little drafty in the tarps, but it's never bothered me before and it's never really been an issue. So as long as you have a, you have a warm sleeping bag, I don't think there's a, a problem with, with having the tarp. So. Yeah. I just, it's personal preference. If I, if I had to do it again, like, um, you know, if I was to change anything, you know, shelter wise or whatever, um, I, I would say like on the second trip, probably bringing the sawtooth, um, you know, wouldn't be a horrible idea. Just it's a little bit bigger and you actually save a little bit of weight. Um, but again, you can't go wrong with a Hillebrand. You can't go wrong with a super tarp or anything like that. It is truly personal preference. I don't, I don't think anyone's ever going to, you know, walk off the mountain being pissed using any of them. Um, yeah, I definitely would not have complained about having the, the stove and the sawtooth a couple of mornings. It, it got cold. Yeah, our, our camp was at 12.6, so it's pretty high. And, um, you know, we had some bristle comb and sparsy pines where we could burn. We actually even made a fire um, not too far from camp. So it would have been doable to, um, you know, burn some wood, uh, in, you know, in a stove or whatever. So it, it's possible. <laughs> but uh, the next question that um, I we got. We probably it, go over uh, which, uh, which Hillbergs we had, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had uh, the onion uh, two the first time on two. Yep. I, I ran the solo for the first trip. Yep. And then, uh, I had the, uh, I brought the Nyack for the, uh, second trip and you brought the onion for the second trip. Yeah. Yep. And then, uh, we both had, uh, I had a paratarp and a big Agnes three wire bivy for my spike out shelter and you had a super tarp, super tarp with an NX. Yep. Yep. So, um, the next question uh, I got a ton was the archery gear, uh, what we used. Um, so for for me, I had a Black Widow PSA, uh, 62 inches long. It's the bow I've been shooting. Um, it's about 58 pounds at my draw length. Uh, I'm shooting a 588 grain arrow. Um, it's a day six gear is what the arrow is called. It's a new company. We're a new podcast later. And I went back and forth between uh, the Valkyrie system, the uh, iron wheel heads, and the cutthroats, and I ended up killing the deer with the 175 and uh, 175 grain. I think they call them the shorties or the titanium Valkyrie head with the stainless steel uh, insert uh, or outsert, I guess you could say, or sleeve. But I guess if I was going to say anything, I think people really need to look at the the heavy arrow system um not just heavy point weight but you shot your deer at 39 yards hit it in the butt and came out its neck um yeah it was a quarter away shot it actually looks in the first picture where it's got the tide on it it looks like i hit him directly in that meat right in his rear quarter but it actually kind of skimmed the right side of his rear quarter there on the right side and uh went in just behind the ribs and came out his neck so like I said on the last podcast, I'm definitely um, pretty well sold on the heavy arrow thing. It's a 560 grain arrow. Um, I have a 125 grain tip on there. I shot it with a solid iron wheel um, broadhead, a 52 grain insert, which is just happened to be the um, Easton. I, I don't know. Do they call it an outsert? It's is like it a half? It's out. like a half outsert um, for their micro diameter arrows. Uh, yeah, I was. I mean, I was sold on it. Um, I knew that that arrow was capable of, of doing that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken that shot. And plus, I had a fixed blade on there. I probably would not have taken that shot with an expandable just because of the hard angle that it was standing at. But, yeah, it was – I mean, that arrow went the full length of the deer's body and came out the neck. And I could not find – I looked for that arrow forever. And I just could not find the arrow. 
Um, so it, it shot off God knows where, but, um, yeah, I was, I was sold on it. I'm really happy with these new arrows or, uh, Brian, I don't know if, I think Brian's posted some pictures of it. They've got a super thick wall for how skinny the arrow is. So, I mean, it's probably one of the, if not the most, if, uh, durable arrow on the market. I mean, I don't, I, I think I've broken one in practice, yeah, um, two, but I, that's it. I mean, I, I, I've shot other arrows when we went to Alabama, I was shooting a different arrow. Um, the first trip and every arrow I shot into a deer had broken. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased so far with this, um, arrow. I, we'll have more feedback once we have more hunts, but, um, yeah, I'm happy with it. And the thing that you've talked about a lot before is having a heavier setup, you know, they're both quieter. Um, so it saved me on my deer. Yeah. So it's, it's very <laughs> noticeable. Um, I think that there's a, something in the outdoors industry and also with certain hunters where speed is like the, their main priority. And I used to think that way too, but I, th- I think I'm only shooting like 260 feet per second. So I'd rather have a, a, you know, somewhat fast bow, but I'd much rather have it be quiet. Yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, I can't stress enough for people just shoot a heavier, you know, arrow and you're always going to have, um, you know, there's always that, oh, I've got a buddy that's done this. I mean, I, Henry Ferguson's a good example. He shoots light arrows. He gets it done. But it can't. it's not arguable that a heavier arrow uh, is going to penetrate more. And also learning to, to tune your bow. We can't cover everything in this specific podcast on tuning because I've had a ton of guys message me um, about tuning stuff. Just, you know, the, the bottom line your arrow needs to fly straight. Your components need to be good. Your arrow needs to be sharp, and you're going to be happier with a heavier arrow, in my opinion. So, um, the uh, the pack I used a pack that was a prototype. People were asking about that. There's some photos. It's just a pack we're working on for 2019. Um, it's not uh, nothing's finalized yet. Um, I should not have posted those photos. Uh, I just wasn't thinking about it, but it, it's just something we've been we've been working on and we're tweaking. And the more times we bring it in the field, the more we may tweak it. Um, there was an attachment on that um, that's basically like a grab it uh, gun sling is what it'll be. Um, we're definitely coming out with that. It works the same way as the grab it. The thing that's nice about it is when you flop it down, the butt of your gun goes inside of it. Uh, so you can run your gun up the back of any of our packs. Um yeah, I don't know what that's even going to be called. The gun grab it, maybe. I don't know. That's the hardest thing about coming out with new stuff is figuring out a name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for sure. Um, some of the other stuff, uh, tactics-wise, I had a bunch of people message me about hunting mule deer. Um, it, in, in, at the, the root of it, um, you need to have, for high country mule deer, good optics. There is no way around it. Uh, the best optics you can afford and you need a good tripod or a tripod um, and you need to glass until your eyes bug out. Um, you know, the thing that, and Frank and I talked about this uh, a, a bit and sometimes, especially with the recurve, if a deer beds at 8.30 or 9, sometimes it's hard for me with the recurve if it beds in a really good spot to not make the approach because it may bed in a worse spot the second time. But overall, for the most part, you probably don't even want to make an approach until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I mean, sometimes they'll feed all damn day. I mean, it seems like they'll feed till 2 o'clock, pop up, especially when it's cooler. But um, that one 4x4, four four, he betted at probably 8, 8.30, and he got back up at what, 10.30 and rebed? Yeah. Now, 
honestly, on that specific one, if I had to do it again, approachable wise, the first place he bed, I, sh- I would have had a better chance, but you have a very good chance of that deer running out of your life forever if you're moving in and you don't know and he's up feeding he and he blows out. It's much better to approach them at their final bedding area because um, they'll usually lay there for a while at that point. A lot of times they'll just might get up for a second and chaw on some shit and lay back down, but almost chaw, chaw, um, <laughs> almost, almost guaranteed after they bed the first time for the day, they're going to rebed anywhere from five to 50 yards from where they bed the first time. I mean, they're going to move is the, the moral of the story. Yeah. I think, uh, while I talked about in the last, the last podcast we just did here, um, I got, a little over anxious and tried to move in on these deer when they went into their initial bedding area and it was probably eight or 9 AM and, um, it kind of screwed me over. I got spotted. They hadn't settled into their bedding area and, uh, I thought I could get to them before they moved into their final spot. didn't work out. It's definitely more of a sure thing to move in on them. Um, when they've reached, you know, their final bedding spot around, like Aaron said, around that 10 or 11 AM mark. Um, and yeah, so I mean, sometimes they will get up and move again after that, but it's more of a sure thing, uh, waiting than moving in right away. So, I mean, every not every situation is the same. Like Aaron was saying, that one that one that bedded down at like eight a.m. You might have been able to get in on him, but I mean, there would have been no way for us to say, hey, you know, he moved because you were already down there. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's that is the the risk you take now. Same scenario, let's say that second to last day, we had that buck bed down at 830. If I could get to that buck in 10 to 15 minutes, I would have dropped down and done it. The reality of it is, though, is is that hardly ever happens. And it's usually an hour to get to it or something. It's forever and you can't move fast. And so that's, you know, and again, this is for, I'm talking about the recurve. You don't get that many great opportunities and neither one of those were perfect where he bedded the first time or the second. But if I can get to it quick, uh, like that morning with Wesley, mm-hmm. uh, that first morning, that was their first bedding area. I guarantee they were going to move. The weather was pretty bad. So that'll usually keep them there a little bit longer, meaning it wasn't hot. I'd have to worry about the sun hitting them. And I was able to get down there fairly quick. So, um, you know, as far as tech tip stuff goes, guys were asking about finding deer. I've hunted with a few people that have never hunted mule deer before. And <laughs> how'd that go? You know, I mean, it's amazing. I don't think people, the moment they see deer, they want to go after the deer. Yeah. There's times I'll spot a deer and I may not even move on it for six hours, depending. Um, and the reason why, uh, you know, as far as moving on it, it could be the wind. It could be the amount of deer around it. There's no reason to go approach a buck you want to kill that's surrounded by four does and 13 other small deer if there's no way you can make, I mean, you really don't want to approach it for the sake of saying you went on a stock, right? You want it to be more of a sure thing. And a lot of times when you watch animals bed, you can tell which deer are going to move first and which deer may not move at all from the where the sun is and how much shade they have. Um, and those, that's all shit you need to take into consideration where the sun's going to hit them and when. Um, you know, I mean, the also the other thing too is when they bed in a food that a place that doesn't have food around them, they're a hell of a lot less likely to move around and eat. Where when they're bedding on that side hill, those little fuckers were getting up all day long and eating because they had food <laughs> yeah. within 10 yards of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think patience is a huge thing. Like you said, fighting that urge just to move in on them right away is uh, 
sometimes can be difficult, but having the patience. And also, say you do spot them when they're bedded down, meticulously glassing where they are is pretty beneficial because you'll see deer that you didn't see initially, and that'll help you on your stock because more often than not, you're getting spotted by deer that you didn't even know were there as opposed to the deer that you're stalking. So I think just trying your best to to really look and see if you can spot all the deer that are in there because sometimes it's, it's super hard. I mean, where your deer bedded down where we uh, where you ended up killing him, you know, we saw where he was feeding, but where he bedded down, I could not see him with the binos. So um, that brings up the, the next point, which was uh, having good glass, um, bringing the spotter and and looking in the shadows. And that thing was bedded down. You could just see its head and his antlers. Yeah, and being smart about it when uh, – I mean, Frank would have been there with me, but he was, he was dying. Um, <laughs> when the weather stopped – I knew, I think I even told you, I said, I knew this son's going to make a move. Yeah. Um, now we had to fake shit. So people thought we were glass in a different area, but I had 15s on that just for the case when they moved. And I think I told you, I had to, I had to come back into 95. I could see his head moving, I thought, but I couldn't tell for sure. And actually in the time I got the spotter and got back on him, he was standing and I could see him a little bit better, but we could not see the, I saw the wide buck earlier. We could not find the wide buck with any optics, and that when I reposit when I moved in for the stock, I was able to see them. That's another thing. Don't be afraid to reposition a little bit. Even a hundred yards can give you a different angle. And when I'm talking about that, if you're going on a stock, and this is for sheep, mule deer, it doesn't matter, whatever, and something's bedded down and you lose it, okay? So you know within forty yards of it of it. 40 yards doesn't mean shit. That is not enough. If you if you can pinpoint it, it's a hell of a lot better to go in. You, you don't always have that. But pinpointing it, if you need to move, you might only catch a tine. You might only catch its main beam. You might only catch something, an ear. But if it's enough for you to know exactly where it is, I mean, how many times are you going into a place you know an animal's at, you're scanning around, and the first time you see it's when he's running away because he spotted you before you spotted him? That shit happens constantly. So repositioning some never hurts. That's when we were dropping down to that lower knob was for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, pinpointing the animal is, is huge. I call it blind stalking when you don't exactly know where they're at. Which doesn't work it with a hawk. hardly hard. ever works. <laughs> and a lot, of, some of the stocks that I had to go, or one of the that first stock would have been blind stalking when I went in those cliffs because this is how I killed my deer last year. I knew where they bedded. Approximately, I have to pop over the other side of some cliffs and relocate them. Super hard to do that because they're not always where you think they are. And you're, like you said, you're moving in, trying to be quiet, trying to be, you know, patient and slow, but more often than not, you're going to just see them running away. So pinpointing them is huge. Yeah. And the other thing... Once you've pinpointed and you go on on a stock, and, and by no means am I a, a mule deer hunting expert, but um, I am pretty sneaky when it comes to that red zone. I cannot stress enough how important it is to maintain situational awareness for other freaking deer, specifically for good horns that should be shot in the face. <laughs> when you get in there, most people get hyper-focused or tunnel vision on the task at hand, which is the buck they're going after. I cannot tell you how imperative it is to stay focused on your surroundings and all other animals. Meaning, if you're getting ready to drop in and the buck's 150 or 100 yards down, and before you drop in, when I say that meaning down, you have a vantage point, 
sit there for a minute and glass the surroundings around the buck. I don't know how many times I've been busted by smaller deer that I wasn't paying attention to or looking for. Look around at everything. Look around your approach. Uh, when you're when you're kind of guessing your approach or, or or figuring that approach out, you know, don't take things for granted that if you're figuring out your approach and one approach is grass and the other approach is pea gravel, which happens frequently or whatever, keep that in mind because you get down there, especially when you're closing that final 40 yards, the difference of two to three feet or two to three inches or whatever is going to be key, especially when you're carrying a damn recurve of noise or anything like that. I mean, you, and, and a lot of times noise is the killer. It may not blow them out, but it's certainly going to make them more alert. So you can't, you know, when you come, when you get up on them to draw, they're going to be looking in that direction. So all those things come into play. Yeah, I agree. I want to talk about one thing. This isn't necessarily a gear failure, but it was definitely a failure on my part when we were, when we were at the, when we were going to hike in on, you know, the initial trip, I knew that that spring that was uh, by my camp was going to dry up. Oh, because yeah. it was like down to a trickle the last time I went scouting. So I decided to bring a pump. Well, I got my pump out and I'm like, ah, this water, I'm pretty sure is pretty clean. I'm not going to bring my brush. The fucking thing clogged up on the first, <laughs> <laughs> the first three liters of, uh, of me pumping water out of this, um, pond. There was just a ton of algae in this pond and, uh, all kinds of little critters in there. And, uh, I had to sacrifice my toothbrush just to, just to freaking scrub the inside of that filter just to, to get water out. So, yeah, that was definitely a failure on my part, not a failure on the pump. But um, generally don't ever have to bring a pump. But this year was a lot different. Um, I was just looking through photos the last couple of years. There was snow at the, on the peaks um, the last couple of years. This year, no snow to speak of, hardly any water up high. So um, that's one thing that didn't work out so well for me. Also, kind of as a fluke, the – the upper portion and the lower portion of my boots on my right heel, um, those ripped apart somewhere on my deer pack out back to uh, back to your camp. So um, it was like I was wearing a tennis shoe on my right foot. Yeah, I was laughing when I saw <laughs> you, you. You know, gear-wise, I bought that Katadin Vario. Yeah. It plugged up. Um, same thing. I mean. I jinxed that one. Yeah. I was like, hey, did your pump did your pump uh, clog up? And same day. You're like, you son of a bitch, you jinxed me. Oh, yeah, it did. It, it clogged up. And, um, you know, water-wise, uh, the first trip, I did not bring the Steriprint. I brought MSR Aquatabs and the Vario and then the, the, the Life Straw. Mm-hmm. That Life Straw, for, so it got so bad on those stocks. It was so horrible coming out of that hole. When I went on a stock, the only thing I brought was my chest rig and that life straw in my pocket, <laughs> and I would suck water out of the creeks on the way back up to to, to hydrate. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there were times, too, like on one of the glassing points, there was a trickle. I was using leaves and wrappers and shit to, to funnel water into my, you know, Nalgene, and I think how I plugged up that Vario was pumping out of rocks. Mm-hmm. Um you know, all those rock formations. Yeah. So every time it rained, after it rained, I'd run around like, I'm sure it was comical, and I would throw that hose in whatever rock I could and fill up that six-liter bladder. I mean, you do what you've got to do for, for water. Um, and I think from all that little micro pebbles or whatever little rocks and, you know, plugged it up. But the Vario, I'm giving it a go-ahead sort of. Um I would not buy it again. Um, it worked, 
but it only plugged up in eight days with relatively, it wasn't like I was pumping out of algae, <laughs> right? I mean, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Now I could clean it, um, you know, and everything else, but it's pretty heavy. Yeah. So, you know, going back and forth, I mean, the SteriPen and the MSR Aquatabs is pretty hard and that life straw was handy, um, you know, to have. I, I, w- I don't think I would bring the pump again. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah, I guess it wasn't a necessity. I could have aqua tabbed it, but that water was freaking disgusting. So, oh, where you were is a little yeah. bit different. Yeah, I had a uh, MSR Sweetwater. I don't even think they make those things anymore. They do actually. Do they? I think they do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, thinking back, uh, you saying that you, all you were taking is just your uh, your chest rig and your your um, your life straw. When I moved in on the deer that I killed, I left everything. <laughs> all I had was my just my chest rig. I didn't bring a jacket. I was like, I need to cross this base and get into these cliffs and get above these deer ASAP before they move into a shot I can or a spot I can shoot. Well, I sat in those cliffs for like four hours and it was windy, it was cold as hell. And then it got hot again and then it got cold. So that's probably something I would recommend not doing in the future is not leaving all your shit in one spot and then go into another one because if it rained or something, I would have been probably pretty pretty well screwed. So Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. The one thing I I think there's got to be a better way. So we used socks. We had the um, Lone Peak moccasins. I got to say with the Lone Peak moccasins, they're a great moccasin. They're not quiet enough for stick bow range for me. Maybe I need to break them in more. Um, I mean, great product, but there's nothing quieter than a sock. I literally got to a point I thought I was going to put socks over the moccasins or something. Like, I have got to find something better for that final distance. You ever mess with those cat paws? No, I don't think so. Have you seen them? The ones that go over the boots? Mm, I'm not sure if you can put them on your socks or not, but it's like a, it's more of like a felt. Man, I know it sounds good to me. So I thought about taking those moccasins and having Bender sew on the felt, like for uh Fly fishing felt that on the bottom Same, of the fly. Yeah, I think that's what those cat paws are. Yeah, that would work because when you're trying to close sub 20 yards um, on a deer or even 40, but it's definitely below 40, you know, especially on that pea gravelly shale stuff. I mean, impossible grass. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's just super difficult. Yeah. I, um, I would have to say for uh, one of the best things that I have used in a long time, um, I was surprised. I was super surprised. There's two different rain gears. The cryptic rain gear performed unbelievably. We get a lot of questions about that because we ran, well, we ran a mixture of stuff, but we had a lot of cryptic. That cryptic rain gear, it's expensive, but that shit is, I don't think, I think it's unrivaled. Um, I wore that, and then I had that big, long Swazi top, their ultralight. Mm -hmm. That thing was badass as well. Um, I really like that NAR, the puffy jacket from Cryptic, but people asked us a bunch about the Altitude series from Cryptic, or I got a bunch of messages about it. It's badass. I mean, um, I mean, there's a price tag on it, but they're, the pants that they make are a version of a pant that I used to wear a ton. It's a Mamut Cormier, I think is how you pronounce it. The, the Cormier was 249 It's a hiking pant. It's made of shoulder dynamic fabric. I ran, I guess, the first trip, a uh, Swazi hooded fleece for my intermediate fleece layer. And then on a second trip, I ran uh, the ASAT. What's that thing called? Highwood? Highwood hoodie. Highwood hoodie. You know, and that worked really well. So, yeah, I mean, the, the cryptic altitude stuff is badass. The other thing we ran a bunch of is the nature's paint, face paint. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to wash off a lot easier than the other shit that's out there. I ran out of it in the mid of my, middle of my second trip. 
And whatever I was using, that shit did not come <laughs> off. Good uh, Christ. Um, you mean you people? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I did. I look like that dude. I, I'm a dude playing a dude disguised another dude. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what dude he is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was yeah, I was I was really happy with that um cryptic gear. I didn't this hunt right before this hunt is when I got got a, a batch of that stuff from you, so I hadn't been able to test it out too much during the summer, but man, I was happy with it and I really like those guys over at Cryptech, so um, I'd like to keep using their stuff. Uh, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of great clothing companies out there: Sitka, First Light, um, Cryptech, the guys at ASAP. But I think I really like the the guys at Cryptech quite a bit. So I'd like to to use a lot more of their stuff. We used I used some of their stuff a few years ago, um, and I never had any problem with it. I probably that and ASAP are probably my two favorite um, camo patterns as far as seem seeming like they were uh, most effective. I would think. I got Highlander, Highlander. Yeah, yeah, Highlander. Highlander. Altitude, I thought it was a little bit dark for up there. Yeah. Um, but Highlander, man, that, I, that's hard to beat that pattern. So I'm going to probably start getting a lot more of that stuff and, and running that, especially for like coyote hunting, man. You can't beat that. Yeah, no, for, for sure. Um, the uh, optics-wise, um, we had – I ran the – that Nikon 3000 image stabilizing rangefinder. I think everyone should have one of those. I love that thing. Um, I think Frank, you ran the SIG. Uh, SIG 2200, yeah. Yep. And then uh, Frank, you had the Zeiss Victory SFs. Yeah, 10 by 42. I had um, the uh, Swarovski SLC HD 10 by 42s. I ran the 1556 Swaros. And then we ran the Leica. Um, 85 it's an 82 or 82 yeah. yeah 82 and then uh the 95 swaro i don't even say a bad thing about any of them they're all the best um i hate to say the best but they are all one of you the best you said it you son of a bitch <laughs> yeah um yeah i think it's uh a lot of those deer in the evening and the early mornings we're spotting them in low light so it's um big testament to uh having good glass and like we said on the last podcast spotting uh running binos on a tripod man you just it's something that sometimes it seems like it's overlooked, but it's uh, it's huge for me for glassing at least. I'd like to generally, depending on the distances I'm glassing, I like to start off with the binos on the tripod, grid it out, see what I see. And then uh, if I'm not seeing anything, then I'll switch to the spotter and then I'll grid it out. Um, but a lot of times I'll, I'll spot a lot of stuff with the binos and I'll switch over to the spotter and get a better look at it. So um, I think spotting stuff with binos on a tripod is huge for me. Yeah, no, and you, you, I glass on 15s on a tripod a ton, and I handhold the binos probably half the time because I, I get behind the spotter pretty quick. Um, you know, and it's a little, I should glass more with the 10s on the tripod before I go to the spotter, and I grid out way more on the spotter than I do uh, with the 10s the on the tripod. And, and, you know, it's funny, like, looking through, I think people have issues looking, I hate to say looking through, or not say hate to say, but probably not the best way to describe it. One of the bucks I spotted for Steve, I spotted the tine through probably 20 yards of timber, and I saw the tine sticking up. It was so hard to find in the spotter, Steve had trouble finding the damn thing. When I'm gritting out, I've already grabbed all the low-hanging fruit I can, so to speak. I've already gra- I've already looked at everything I can. Uh, when I start gritting out, I'm looking at every tree that's in the shade. I'm looking through it. Um, I'm looking inside of the different, you know, sparsy pines or bristle cone. I'm not just looking for a deer. I'm looking for a deer's rack. And Frank's got eagle eyes. He picks up things that a lot of times I just don't pick up. Um, and a lot of times it's because I am 
looking in that spot or at shit that I probably, well, you, that deer. You're look, looking at your wiener through the spotter quite a bit. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Well, it makes it look bigger. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but the, uh, you looked at, you found that one buck walked out right below us. I'm glassing a mile and a half away at shady spots in timber. And you were like, oh, there's a buck right there. And because and you were glassed on a tripod. I like and, to, uh, one thing is I'll, I like to do like three passes on a basin if I can or four. I like to go back and forth because I know that I'm going to see a deer. And if you pass by a spot one time, they could be standing behind a tree or whatever. And then you go back and they're, they fed out a little bit. So um, I don't generally try to, I don't give up on a spot right away after glassing it just once. I like to glass it a few times. Well, and you think about what, how easy it is for a deer to disappear. Well, meaning once you've found it and how fast he goes away. Yeah. I mean, when you're glassing over something, you got to keep that in mind. It doesn't take a whole lot for a deer to disappear. He's just got to lay down, right? I mean, he's just got to move three feet. I mean, it doesn't, and especially when you go on stocks and you're seeing some of the beds they hide in, you didn't even know were there. Crazy, uh, yeah. And that's where I talk about looking through, you know, picking out animals. Um, when, uh, you know, for example, when I spotted, we say it called Wesley's buck, but where the buck Wesley was after, the one time... Um, it was out in the wide open, and we lost it. I ended up finding it. There was actually three trees. It made an arrow pointing to the deer. But, dude, there was times you're looking at a four-inch patch of fur. You just couldn't <laughs> yeah. see it. Um, he was there. And if I was to glass that and didn't know he had went in that, I would have never found that shit. I mean, you really have to be meticulous behind the glass. And, I mean, what the fuck else are you going to do? Twelve days back there, right? <laughs> I, I mean, all you got to do is glass and find water and eat. I mean— so, yeah, being meticulous. And, I mean, a couple of the guys we saw yesterday, it was comical the way they glassed. Um, Frank, why don't you chime in on that? <laughs> you haven't noticed like, there was one guy that was down below that he would – popped over into the basin, sat there, glassed with his binos on his – you know, in his hands for, like, 10, 15 minutes and then just moved on. I was like, what? how are you going to see – this is a huge basin. The, the basin you're hunting, freaking huge. Probably what fourteen hundred yards long. It's just massive and timber super, everywhere. Yeah, dynamic freaking terrain. You got cliffs. You got patches of timber. You got wide open um, slopes. Tons of stuff to glass. You got to grid it out, man. There's no other way about. It. You might get lucky and see something, but more often than not, you're not going to. And I think just before that, or shortly after, we'd spotted those two bucks, and you know, the, the guy just he didn't spend a whole lot of time on it and moved on. And he had a muzzle loader. And yeah, he had a he had a gun. It almost looked like he was pretty discouraged. Probably not seeing a whole lot, but I think um, being strategic in your glassing is huge. You know, so you're not going to see stuff right away, but the more time you spend behind the glass, like you said, you don't have anything else to do, so just glass. Yeah, we. I mean, we only saw three deer glassing, and we killed one of them. Um, you know, obviously all the deer are starting to drop into the tim more. They're rubbing off their velvet. But, I mean, we talked about it. The deer are there. You will find them if you look long enough. It may take a while. So glassing is, is huge. Um, the Alaskan Guide Creation Harness, uh, they sent me new ones. Sorry, guys. I still have not gotten rid of the old lucky one. Um, man, how old is that thing? Five years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It might be older than that. That thing's been beat to shit. But I, I, it's, it's lucky. I hate to get rid of it. I've used it forever. Um you know, so I mean that the that's a testament to Alaskan guide creations. I think I've had that since two thousand 
13 or 14, um, that same harness, it's been on just about every hunt with me. I've just had great luck with it, and I hate to get rid of it. Um, in fact, at this point, what do we have, six of them at the house? Yeah. I just I, don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to use a different one. I just switched to one that has the, the uh, boot hook instead of the buckles, but other than that, yeah, I love that thing. Yeah, no, for, for sure. Uh, Food-wise, we bought, we had off-grid uh, food for breakfast, uh, their beef jerky. We had Humble Foods dinners, Bobo bars, those uh, on it uh, meat sticks, their buffalo sticks. Uh, we had, I can't remember what those crackers are. Good Lord, they're good. I don't know what they are. They're mm-hmm. uh, like an almond flour Something healthy, they're but they're freaking delicious. They are orga- they're orgasmic. I think the winner for me had to be the off-grid um, oatmeals. Yeah, the blue razz. I was telling you, I'm like, dude, I don't know if you had this problem, but I was so tired some nights that I would make oatmeal and I would just drink it. I didn't feel like chewing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, we would do, like, overnight oatmeal, just pour your water in it, and then uh, wake up in the morning and just eat it like cold cereal. Super good, man. I, that was probably my win- clear winner for the food. Humble Foods makes great dinners. No complaints there. Off-grids dinners are awesome, but the breakfasts were what kept me going most of the time. I ate most of my breakfasts and uh, had a few dinners left over by the time I got back to you. So Yeah, we had to do some food divvying when we met back up because we were running low on on food. Um, we actually just had those uh, that Sweetwood jerky those guys sent us some jerky to try out. They're here in Colorado. I yeah, love, we brought that on the second trip. That stuff's super good. Part of the problem was I ate most of it before we left. <laughs> um, my bad. Food-wise back there, I mean, it, it's important to have good food. Um, you know, I did not calculate. I just, my caloric intake, I was burning way more calories climbing in and out of that hole than I thought I would, and I fucking could not stop eating. <laughs> I could not stop eating. Um, to a point, I ate. My f- daily food by 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. one day. And the other thing, too, is, okay, let's say, you know, you look at the weather temperature and it says 48 in the morning. 48 is not that cold. Well, with a 40-mile-an-hour wind, it's pretty freaking cold. Mm-hmm. And I, there was one point in time Wesley and I were shivering so bad, I was having trouble. I'd have to stop and take my hands off the binos and lock them in and not touch them and look because I was shaking so bad. And, it, you know, we'd run around the, to the rock outcropping and hide, try to get out of the wind. I did push-ups trying to warm up. I, I would have to say the only one thing I have to – I got to find some different gloves. My hands get so freaking cold. That was one issue I had was was glove-wise. Um, you know, as far as, like, durability, we I've had great luck. I don't know about you with everything we use as far as – I mean, from the arrow, the bows, the packs, the tents, I mean, everything performed flawlessly. My bow took a serious ass whooping and is still firing. I got to put a new string on today because the fucking deer rolled over the top of it. But I mean, I had those judo tips practicing and I cannot say enough about those day six arrows, their durability. Um, You know, we'll talk about it more as time goes on, but... You know, it, it is nice knowing you've got one arrow as your practice arrow with a judo tip, and you know you may the only thing you might have to swap out is a knock because you shot rocks or something with it. So, you know, and, and the broadhead-wise, both Valkyrie, uh, the Iron Will, well, I mean, and the Cutthroat, but you could shave with my Iron Will after it went in that animal, uh, or with my, my Valkyrie, and uh, we— um, you could shave with my iron will after it blew through that black bear um, and blew its arm in half. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I think uh, if 
I had to name like one of my most crucial things that I pieces of gear that I had. I've had to, I've said this a million times before. This is not a sales pitch because we work here. The Lost Park parka. I wear that thing in the morning when it's cold in the afternoon when it's windy and glassing every night at camp. I do not leave camp without it. I love that thing. So that's probably that's probably one of besides optics. That's probably one of my most important pieces of gear. One thing that I'm definitely still probably trying to figure out is a quiver. I used a tight spot quiver for several years, but they are just so loud, man. It, it's uh, we've epoxied them um, to kind of we reduce. cracker rigged it many times. It's still loud. I just can't get over it. So that's uh, I might. I don't know if I'm gonna join the quiverizer movement. Probably not. But I want to find a quiver that's actually quiet. Other than that, I mean, it's a great quiver. It uh, seems to be really well built. It's pretty lightweight, but. I want to figure something out as far as the quiver game. So if somebody's got some uh, recommendations for me, I'm all ears. I'd like to try something else out. Um, not knocking too hard on the on, on those guys, but I just would like something that's quiet. I, well, hopefully they listen. I mean, there's got to be a way. We've gotten – we probably cut half the noise out of it with what we did to mm-hmm. it, but it still makes some noise. One of the things I've had really good luck with, um, that Nikon rangefinder, I've had really good luck with that, the image stabilization. Um just for the simple fact, when you're crapping your pants, it does help you lock in a little bit, um, you know, or lock on a little bit, or whatever, because it does lock. It doesn't lock on the animal like a laser guided target, but meaning it stabilizes. That would be cool if it did. Oh yeah, you're crapping your pants. And it shot a laser at him. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But man, I don't really know what else to to cover. Um, we got a million and a half questions about finding deer, but maybe we'll do a, another like a Q and A podcast. Yeah, and kind of gather up everything we've had. So yeah, either way. Well, so, if you're listening in and you want to ask questions, by all means, send us a message. So what else do we have left here? We probably I don't know if you're going to go out, but I'll probably go out for a couple of days here for antelope. Got a pretty decent tag. Um, it's pretty decent a thing. I got a pretty good tag uh, for that. We got pretty not bad. <laughs> pretty all right. We've got elk with Gabrio and uh, Charlie next week in Montana, and then uh, yeah, we got a whole bunch of hunts coming Alberta, up. So you got Idaho, Idaho, yep, uh, Oklahoma, Alabama, Missouri, yeah, quite a bit. So we are just getting started. Pretty excited. It just took me a decade to get a deer, <laughs> a short decade. Yeah, yeah. So all right, well, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and definitely send in your questions. See you.